friends, welcome to this edition of We Need God, a podcast by Father Andrew Carroza, a priest of the Archdiocese of New York and pastor of St. Anne's Parish in Yonkers, New York. We Need God will address why we need God in our lives, how to know who He truly is, and how to follow Him with an authentic faith that will change our lives. It is especially directed towards young adults to help them wade through the many confusing opinions of modern religion that affect them. Please relax now and join Father Carroza for this episode.
rather than the Bible tells us that because there's so many different books in the Bible and you may not know, you know what you're talking about. Also, the fact that the Bible was not, nobody sat down and wrote it from the first word of it, Genesis to the last word of Revelation as one solid thing written through. And we'll talk a little bit about how the Bible came to be in a second. So, um, yeah, so we can't just you know, sit down and read it and we, we, like, we have to look at what we're reading and understand what was behind it. And I want to start by talking about how the Bible did not come to exist. And this may shock some of our born-again Christian friends, but some people, this is how they think the Bible came to be. There were thunder blasts in heaven, or trumpet blasts in heaven, and major thunderbolts, and the voice of God spoke. And a cloud came down from heaven, holding this on it, and the angels sang the hallelujah chorus. And the Lord said, here is sacred scripture, here is the Bible. Everything you need to know to follow me is written here in this book. And that's all you need is everything here. Well, of course, that's a myth. <laughs> that, that's not at all the way the Bible came about. First of all, the fun thing we have to remember is that the Bible as we have it now... Even to this day, there's no consensus among Christians, and if we go to the Old Testament, even among Jews, as to what belongs in the Bible. We do believe that the Bible, sacred scripture, is inspired by God. So we, as Catholics, what we believe belong in the Bible, we feel all the books that are here were inspired by God. The Holy Spirit inspired the author to put these words down, and the message they give us is inerrant. It cannot be wrong. Not in history or science. This is not a history book, it's not a history textbook, and it's not a science book. This is not God telling about how all the things in science work, nor was there a stenographer sitting there uh, taking notes as God was creating and gave us an accurate account of everything God did. What is inerrant in the Bible is the message the Lord is giving to us about our relationship with Him and how to follow Him. I mean, if we're thinking that everything is Inerrant, you know, historically or scientifically, well, there's things even in the scriptures themselves that would contradict each other when it comes to facts, when it comes to dates, when it comes to even little things such as there's two different accounts of how many animals uh, or how many of each type of animal that Noah took into the ark. The traditional one we understand is two of each. You know, one male and one female of every animal. That's one tradition there. But right next to it in the book of Genesis is what where the Lord tells Noah to take in seven pair of clean animals, meaning animals that they were allowed to eat, that were kosher, and one pair of unclean animals. Well, which did he do? Only one pair, one male and one female of each, or seven pair and one pair? So if you're looking historically and factually, we're going to forever have problems. But if we understand the truth that what is inerrant in the Bible is the truth God is giving us about our relationship with Him, then all the little differences in there don't matter. There was no consensus in the early days, and there is still no consensus today as to which texts are uh, inspired by God. Our Jewish friends had the problem long before even Christ came along of figuring out what belonged, what was inspired by God. So you know, people didn't just sit down and say, hey, let's write the Bible here. Uh, most of it started with oral traditions, people telling stories about different things, and there were so many different stories out there. And eventually, as Judaism started to evolve and formulate itself 
as a clear and separate religion with its own identity, and as they came in contact with the Greeks, who had their own myths, their own creation stories and everything, that's when the Jews started to decide to write down and say, well, let's put to pen and paper all of these legends that we have. And some things maybe had been written down, but others were just passed on from generation to generation as part of oral tradition. And so they had the task of sitting down and trying to figure out what can we rely on, what is the word of God to us, and which are just stories that have no truth, that are not a message from God. The one, for example, that <clears throat> comes to mind was there was an ancient Jewish belief in a woman called Lilith, who was, according to the belief, Adam's first wife before Eve came along. Well, of course, when the Jews got together and they're going through all these different creation stories, this is one they had, and they rejected it. They said, no, that's obviously not teaching us anything about God and our relationship with him. And they said, no, that's not to be trusted, that's not helpful. So they rejected that. Many other things. Even to this day, among Jews, there is not a consensus as to what belongs to the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. Some Jews will only accept the first five books, the Torah, which we call the Pentateuch. Others will add the writings and the prophets. Then there's other books that some will accept, some not. So there's no consensus among Jews. There's even no consensus among Christians to this day as to what belongs in the Bible. In the very beginning, in fact, the reason, the way we got the scriptures, the way we have the Bible today, started with the Council of the Church, uh, the Council of Hippo, in the year 393. And it was called, and it wasn't an ecumenical council, it wasn't called by the Pope in Rome, it was a local council, um, because there were lots of different things out there. There were many, many things people were reading and talking about, and some of them were contradictory. So some of the things obviously were very helpful. Then there were other things that told nice things that were cute little stories, but did they really have anything to do with the gospel, the call to salvation of Christ? And then you had other things that were deliberately telling an opposite tale. Obviously written, the people realized early on they were written by people with an agenda. For example, something that hit the news the you know, last bunch of years or so, the so-called Gospel of Judas. Now, first of all, there's no way Judas Iscariot ever himself sat down and wrote a gospel account when he killed himself the night that Jesus was, um, was arrested. And in the story, as the people say they read it, in the story of the gospel according to Judas, Judas didn't betray Jesus. Judas did what Jesus told him to do. He wanted him to hand him over. So therefore, he's not a traitor. So trying to change all of that. Well, and it will force, this only came along, we know it was written only about 150 years after the fact, after the resurrection. So, you don't have to be a, a, a you know, brain surgeon to figure out you know, where this came from. Obviously, Judas's descendants, his family, were tired of people looking at this saying, oh, your great-great-grandfather or your great-great-uncle or whoever he was, he's the one who betrayed Jesus. So they wrote this thing to try to save faith, saying, you know, stop calling our great-grandfather you know, um, the, the, the traitor. He didn't betray Jesus. You know, you know, Jesus told him to do that. But nobody bought it. And it was just dismissed as rubbish. So, there were many things in the scriptures that way. Uh, and, well, excuse me, in old writings that way. Some of them, like the Gospel according to Peter, have some very helpful things in it. The Proto-Evangelion of James is the first one to speak about the Immaculate Conception of Mary, of calling Mary the spotless ever-virgin, and many other things in that. Many of the other writings have helpful things in them. The Didache, a document known as the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles, 
has wonderful insights into how the earliest Christians celebrated the Mass. But when people read them, when the church finally got together and said, what is telling the gospel story? Well, these things were helpful, but they did not feel them as inspired by God and belonging to the scriptures. And some of the other so-called gospel accounts, the gospel of Mary Magdalene, the one that makes news all these days, Dan Brown and his other thing about that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, which is not in that book, but some people read it in there and try to read it in. And all these things were all different agendas. And the early church saw right through them. They realized these things were bogus. So they dismissed them. And they get lost because nobody was reading them. And then 1,800 years later, somebody finds a copy of it and says, Aha! The church had the truth and they suppressed it because they didn't want the truth about Mary Magdalene coming out. And it's garbage. It's just nonsense. People dismissed it because they said it was unreliable and had no value whatsoever. And obviously had an agenda. But from among, even among the many different gospel accounts that were out there and other writings, the writings of St. Paul and some of the other letters that we now have in the scriptures, even among the great saints and the fathers of the church, there was debate. Some of them believed certain things belonged in the Bible, others didn't. So finally, the Council of Hippo, Hippo in 393, they got together and prayed and said, let's decide which things belong in the Bible, which are inspired by God, that we can say is definitely the word of God speaking to us, and that will lead us to salvation by the gospel of Christ. And when it came to the gospel accounts, one of the first things that they used about the practice of the people was, well, when the people want to be nourished on the gospel, to which of all these different gospel accounts, and there were dozens of them out there, to which do people refer? And right away, everything, well, everybody says that they go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so those are the four accounts of the gospel that were discerned as uh, inspired by God and therefore included in the scriptures. And of course, all of the Christians to this day all agree on those four. When it came to the other um, letters and things, there was a lot of debate back and forth. But ultimately, 393, and then again, at two, two councils of Carthage, 397 and 419, they solidified it. Ironically, the Catholic Church did not officially discern or define the dogma of the scriptures as we have them today until the Council of Trent, which was the response to the Protestant Reformation from 1545 to 1563. And that was because some of the Protestant reformers had come around and threw out a whole bunch of the books in the Old Testament, especially, and a few others here and there that we'll talk about, because they kind of were a little bit too Catholic sounding, that if they were right, then our Catholic beliefs were correct. And so they threw them out. So one of the first things you may discover if you have Protestant friends and you're working with the Bible is what's in the Bible? We have a whole bunch of books in the Old Testament that they don't have in their Bibles. Now, some will call it the Deuterocanonical books, the second canon, or they sometimes we even call them the apocryphal books. No, we call them the Deuterocanonical ones because they belong there. We believe that wisdom, for example, the Book of Wisdom, the Book of Sirach, the Books of Maccabees, which clearly talk about purgatory and offering prayers for the dead. Well, you can understand, if you know anything about Martin Luther, why he didn't want that in there, because he did not believe that you could be offering prayers for the dead, and he did not believe in purgatory, and that proved him wrong. So therefore, he had to throw it out of the Bible. So he did, and that caused a lot of division, even among Protestants. They didn't all agree as to which did and which didn't belong. For example, Martin Luther threw the letter of James out of the New Testament, but none of the other Protestants did that. They retained it. 
So, there's no complete consensus, even to this day, as to what belongs in the Bible. It depends on who you talk to. And with all of that, one of the biggest problems we have is when people go and read the Bible, unfortunately, a lot of people look for what they want to be there. And that's the worst mistake you can make. The absolute worst mistake somebody can do is to pick up, the, come to the Bible with a preconceived idea to decide, I believe this, and then they're going to find a, a scripture text to prove them right. And that happens frequently. And it never leads to dialogue. It only leads to division and debate. And we never understand anything from that. But it's a common thing. The Jehovah's Witnesses do that when they ring your doorbell. That's precisely what they're doing. They even have their own version of the Bible. They've even totally retranslated things. And they'll try to do that. And they'll bring up one little line in the Bible and say, you see, the Catholic Church is wrong about that. Well, it's because of that that it has been said that even Satan can quote scripture to his advantage. If you're going to look for a line somewhere to prove what you want, you're going to find it. Anybody can twist anything to mean what he wants it to do. And in fact, from the very beginning, St. Peter, in one of his letters that's in the Bible, says, no one should do harm to the scriptures by interpreting them according to his own preconceived idea, but always read what God wants us to know there. So, but if you want to just pull out the Bible and pick up a line or anything, anybody, even Satan, could quote it to his advantage. For example, Psalm 14 proves God does not exist. Did you know that? The Bible definitively says God does not exist. And I'll read it to you. There is no God. Psalm 14, verse 1, it's even in quotes. There is no God. The Bible says there is no God. So I guess we're wrong, right? Oh. Must be, right? Nancy, would you like to come up and do us a favor? Can we have our money back? <laughs> Nancy, come here. So that nobody thinks I'm lying. Do you see here the line that says there is no God? Oh, wait, 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 wait. Before you see the line that says there is no God. So it is there. Would you please read the context? Read the line before it. Fools say in their hearts there is no God. Aha. Uh -huh. The fool says in his heart there is no God. Obviously, you need to take it in context. Now, nobody would be that crazy to read it that way and try to claim that obviously, you know, God doesn't exist and the Bible tells you because there's myriads of other things that tell the other ones. But people can use things very cleverly to try to support their own arguments. Let me give you a perfect example. When I was in college, I had a lot of friends who were born-again Christians. Many of them were ex-Catholics who, when all of a sudden they discovered Jesus, they blamed the Pope, they blamed the priest, they blamed the nuns, they blamed the parents, they blamed their godparents, they blamed everybody in the world that they didn't have faith except themselves. See, it wasn't their fault. The church failed them. It wasn't that they didn't listen. They didn't respond to what the church was teaching them. Be that as it may. So one guy was arguing with me saying that Mary could not possibly be the Immaculate Conception, have been sinless. He says, why? I can prove it. And he goes to Luke chapter 1, verse 47. And he reads this to me, and this is from the Magnificat. And he says, uh, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Therefore she has sinned. Because God is her Savior. So therefore he had to save her from sin. I said, no. I said, that's not what it means. First of all, 
I said, we're not saying that Mary was sinless by her own work. She didn't do anything to make her sinless. It was a privilege of God that she is sinless. Yes, God is her savior. He saved her from sin. But I said to her, imagine this. You're standing with two people on the edges of a, of a river. The water is really rushing. And you're looking and saying, wow, the water is really rough today. And all of a sudden, the ground underneath you begins to give, uh, give way. And you start falling into the river. So you take your left hand and you push back the person here, knock them onto solid ground. And then the one on your right fell in the water. You jump in, pull the person out of the water, and bring them to safety. Have you saved both of them? And he said, well, of course. I said, well, that's like us and Mary. God saved Mary by keeping her from ever entering sin by his privilege. And us, he saved because we were in sin and pulled us out of it. So either way, God is still the Savior of the Blessed Mother and all of us. And then I said to him, I said, you also seem to have missed the next line. From this day, all generations shall call me blessed. So what do you do about that line? Mary herself is saying there, all generations will call me blessed. So how can you just automatically, he was trying to, not only that, but just dismiss that we should have any the devotion to Mary at all was all unbiblical, he was trying to say, and against God's will. I say, well, no, obviously not. You see that there. So that's an example okay, of people doing that. Okay. And when we do that, if we just go to the Bible with an idea in our mind and looking for a scripture text, we can find it, and we can debate very well with other people, and we can confound them, and maybe we can win the debate in the sense that we've silenced them, but what we haven't done is had any dialogue, any understanding with each other. We haven't healed any differences. And we haven't grown closer to the Lord that way. We haven't understood the truth. We've only silenced an enemy. So, what we don't want to do is what that is. That's called eisegesis, reading into the text. What we want to do is the reverse of that, exegesis. Taking out of the text what is there. What God intended, what the human author intended. And if we can understand that, then we have a big um, advantage into truly understanding how to pick up the scriptures and understand what's there. First of all, there's not one type of literature in the Bible. There's all sorts of different things. We have historical narratives, such as the whole first five books of the Bible, are basically the Torah, and you also have the other historical books in the Old Testament. You have writings, like the Psalms, the Proverbs, which are all a whole bunch of little one-liners. Uh, we have poetry. In addition to the Psalms, the Song of Songs is a beautiful love poem. And then in the New Testament, we have the Gospel accounts. We have the Acts of the Apostles, which is an historical account of, of what the Apostles did after Pentecost. Then we have Paul's letters and the other letters. And then that crazy of all type of literature, apocalyptic literature, which I'll save to the end. Um, so we need to know, first of all, what type of literature are we reading? Are we reading something that's meant to be an historical text telling us what happened? Are we reading something that's meant to tell us a relational story, like many of the things in the book of Genesis about our relationship with God? Are we reading poetry? What are we reading? Obviously, that makes a big difference to our understanding. And also, what occasion the person to write the text? Most especially when we're talking about the Gospel accounts and St. Paul's letters. What happened to make Paul write that letter? One thing I think people forget about is that um, 
And I remember having this discussion with another born-again Christian friend of mine when I was in college. We were talking about the letters to the Romans, and she was mentioning something. And I said, yeah, I know. I said, well, when Paul wrote the letters to the Romans, she goes, well, Paul didn't write the letter to the Romans. And I thought she meant there are some scholars today that think that some of the letters that we claim are from Paul were actually only attributed to him that he didn't actually write. But Romans is one of the ones that everybody absolutely agrees Paul wrote. No question about that. I reject that on the line of logic, quite frankly. I believe Paul's authorship for those letters is authentic and real. That would be another topic in itself. Why? But I said to her, I said, well, and I know what you mean. Some people think that, you know, somebody wrote this and attributed it to St. Paul's. No, I mean, Paul didn't write the letters to the Romans. God did. I said, oh, really? So what you're thinking is St. Paul sat down one day and picked up a pen and went into a trance and went, Praise God, Scripture, everybody! <laughs> it's not how Paul's letters came out. If Paul had done that, first of all, even St. Peter has to mention that some of Paul's writings are they, they're lots of run-on sentences and they're hard to understand. Some of them, like the letters to the Galatians, Paul is angry. And he's writing in his anger, which we're always told you should never do. But here Paul was angry. You stupid Galatians, he calls them. I think if we'd known that was going to be in the scriptures, he might have cleaned up his language a little bit. You know, I don't think Paul for a moment thought when he was writing a letter to one of these communities that someday it would be considered in the, uh, inspired by God and worthy of being read alongside the gospel accounts, which weren't even written yet, but in the Bible like the Old Testament texts that they had. No. What was the reason why St. Paul wrote that letter at that moment? Galatians is the easiest one to look at because we discover... There was a big debate in the early church when Gentiles, non-Jews, wanted to become believers in Jesus. First, some of the earliest Jews thought that, well, no, only Jews can be saved. But then Peter had his famous vision with the canvas coming down from heaven by the four quarters with all of the unclean foods in it. Get up, Peter, slaughter and eat. And he says, God forbid, Lord, no one food has ever crossed my lips. What God has called clean, you are not to call unclean. It happened three times. And he understood, first of all, that we were no longer bound by the dietary laws. So yes, I can have shrimp and lobster and prosciutto and enjoy it because those are no longer you know, non-kosher foods. We're not bound by the kosher laws. But more importantly, as soon as that finished, the representatives from Cornelius, the Roman centurion, who had sent people to him, asked him to come with them, and he did. And Cornelius told him how the Lord Jesus had spoken to him in a dream and asked him to send for Simon, known as Peter. And he did, and he, he baptized the whole family, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they told everybody, and they said, well, if that's the case, then God has granted salvation even to the Gentiles. So, okay, so now salvation is going to go to all the world, beginning with the Jews, beginning in Jerusalem. But then that brought up the question, all right, Jesus and the apostles were all Jewish. These Gentiles, who were never Jews, maybe they worshipped the gods of Rome or Isis or whatever it was, whatever different religious beliefs they had, who began to believe in Jesus, well, then they have to become Jews first, right? So they have to go out and, you know, they got to follow all the kosher laws and they got to follow all the Jewish rituals and worship in the temple properly. Oh, and grown men, you have to be circumcised. And right away, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, we don't want to be Jews, we want to be Christians. And that's a big thing to answer. Do I have to go through this painful surgery in order to believe in Jesus? Some of the people, such as St. James, one of the apostles, and his followers were saying, yes, you have to jump through all the loops, just like Jesus did. He was Jewish, you've got to become Jewish, and then come into Christianity. 
Paul is pulling his hair out of his head over it. And Peter, the same thing, they're fighting it. And Paul, in writing to them, saying, is it the Jewish law that saves you? Are we saved by obedience to the law? It is not the Jewish law that saves us, but our faith in Christ. And if, Christ, and if, if salvation is available by, dying to the, by following the Jewish law, then Christ died for no purpose. You stupid Galatians, because a bunch of people had come to them saying, unless you're circumcised, you, have to, you must be circumcised in order to enter the kingdom. And so Paul got angry because they were believing him, and he left, and other people came in, and they were practicing circumcision. And he calls them the circumcisers. He gets so angry at one point, he says, you know, he says, and as for those who practice circumcision, you know, I wish they would go all the way and castrate themselves. Actually, in the letter to Galatians, if you read it, okay, I think Paul would have cleaned it up a little bit if he didn't know it was going to be the Bible someday. Okay, so he was really angry when he wrote that letter. So we need to understand that. What was in the mind of the evangelists when they were writing things down? For example, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You might notice they mentioned different things, you know, to their in their gospel accounts. Well, Matthew was writing for a Jewish audience, trying to convince them that he was the promised Messiah of Israel. Mark is in Rome, writing to Roman pagan converts, mostly, and trying to convince pagan believers and strengthen Christian believers there. And he's in your facing the, the, the pagan Roman beliefs. Luke is trying to show for a man by the name of Theophilus, which means God-lover, that everything he received was faithful training. So he goes back and says, I've gone and sought out witnesses from the very beginning. I've interviewed them to put down and show your excellency, Theophilus, that the teaching you received was precise. And then John, we don't really know. John was written later, and he seems to be writing more to maybe a Jewish Pharisaical audience, people well-learned in the Jewish law, that they should understand that, you know, from everything with the full theology of Israel, that they should have been able to see all these things played out in the life of Christ. And he even shows how the chief priests, the Pharisees, and the others were opposed to Jesus from the get-go. You notice that at the very beginning of John, they're already antagonized. Jesus, they never accepted him. So you need to know all of that. Other than that, if we don't do that, and we don't understand the context of the text, well, then we're going to run into problems. And while some of them are silly little things that people do, other ones are critical, and they cause big troubles. And one of them was Martin Luther, when that came along and starting the Reformation. Now, yes, there were problems, obviously, in the 16th century. Uh, John Tetzel was selling indulgences, and there was immorality going around among some of the bishops and some of the priests. Not all of them, as some people like to think. There were some very holy and pious priests and bishops and saints, there were even some canonized saints among the Renaissance time. But yes, some of them were living sinful lives and everything. And that was one of the complaints. But Martin Luther went a little further. Martin Luther had a personal problem in that he didn't believe he could ever do enough penance for all of his sins. And he was beating himself up over his sins. And in one sense he's correct. No, you and I can never actually do enough penance to forgive our sins. We couldn't possibly do it. However, what he forgot is we don't have to. That's what Christ did on the cross. He offered the once for all true sacrifice for our sins, and we're united with him by receiving his body and blood of the Eucharist that were with him on the cross. And when we do penance, like if you come to me and go to confession, and I give you three Our Fathers, 
Well, nobody, I think, for a moment thinks that those three-hour fathers are paying back drop for drop for everything you did to offend God. It is not those three-hour fathers that are saving you, but the suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ that is made truly present to you in the sacrament of reconciliation. So, in that sense, he was right, but he forgot we don't have to do drop-for-drop drop penance. Jesus did that. That's his gift to us. Otherwise, you and I would have had to have gone through the cross. And that he would basically, he would have said, anybody who wants to enter my kingdom, you do that, and I'll let you in. But he said, no, I'm not going to do that. I will die for you, and I'll give you my body and blood as food to unite with me, so that you will be with me on the cross. Well, he seemed to miss that. And all of a sudden, in order to ease his conscience, he started picking up lines, especially Paul to the Romans, and he read something that, in his mind, proved that we don't have to do penance. So let me give you that one. It's Romans uh, 3, 21 to 31. Okay. So, this is what Paul is saying. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though testified to by the law and prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and all are deprived of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as an expiation through faith by His blood to prove His righteousness because of the forgiveness of sins previously committed, through the forbearance of God to prove His righteousness in the present time, that He might be righteous and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. What occasion is there then for boasting? It is ruled out. On what principle? That of works? No, rather on the principle of faith. For we consider that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Does God belong to Jews alone? Does he not belong to Gentiles too? Yes, also to Gentiles. For God is one and will justify the circumcised on the basis of faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Are we, not, uh, are we then annulling the, the law by this faith? Of course not. <clears throat> on the contrary, we are supporting the law. Now that's the paragraph. Martin Luther picked out that one line in there. We are justified by our faith in Jesus and not in our works. And therefore decided nobody has to do good deeds to go to heaven. And many of our Protestant brothers and sisters to this day, that's what they hold on to. It's your faith in Jesus that leads you to heaven. So you don't have to do any good deeds. It doesn't matter what you do. As long as you say you believe in Jesus, you will go to heaven. Now, we actually, in fact, you probably can already see in what I read there, the problem. Because what Paul was talking about is what we've already discussed. The works of the Jewish law. When you say, from the, you know, we're justified by faith in Jesus apart from the works of the law. Of the Jewish law. So we are not saved by going to the temple on Sabbath on the Sabbath by paying the proper mint on tithe and by bowing just the right way and wearing the proper phylacteries and, and having the uh, mezuzahs all over the place. That's what not what's saving you. It is your faith in Christ that is saving you. It had nothing to do with doing good deeds. That's not what Paul was talking about. But Martin Luther took it to mean that. And so he defended that. Well, people right away took him to task on it. said, well, Martin Luther, how can you say that? First of all, doesn't Jesus say, not anyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom, but only the one who does the will of my heavenly Father? Well, that should prove you wrong. Uh, he fuzzed around that. Okay, it wasn't, you know, 
So then he decided, well, let's go to something else. How about the letter of St. James? Okay. Um, where they said, okay, if you think that, here, let's go to James. I didn't mark it, but let me get to give you a moment to get the letter of James up here. There it is. So, James says, and this is chapter 3, um, excuse me, chapter 2, verses 14 and following. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister has nothing to wear and has no food for the day, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but do not give them the necessities of the body, what good is it? So also faith of itself, if it does not have works, is dead. <clears throat> Indeed, someone might say, you have faith and I have works. Demonstrate your faith to me without works, and I will demonstrate my faith to you from my works. And then he goes on and says at the end, for, um, for he says, in the same way, faith without works is as dead as a body without breath. St. James clearly says that. You know, you can say you believe in Jesus, but if you don't go out and help people the way he tells you to do it, well, your faith, it's the faith underlying your works that will save you. But it needs to be manifested in the good deeds that you naturally do for other people, naturally taking care of people. Clearly proves him wrong. So what did he say? Well, that's a straw epistle, and he threw it out of the Bible. On his own authority, you know, whether the facts disagree with the theory, you discard the facts. So he threw that out. I said, okay, you don't like the letter of James. Good. How about the words of Jesus himself, they said? How about Matthew 25? The famous parable of the, uh, the, uh, the last day. Uh, okay, the judgments of the nations. All right. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit upon his glorious throne, and all the nations will be assembled before him. And he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. A stranger and you welcomed me. Naked and you clothed me. In prison, and you visited me, <clears throat> and you cared for me. Um, then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When, when did we see you ill or in prison and visit you? And the king will say to them in reply, Amen, amen, I say to you, whatever you did for one of these least brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. A stranger, and you gave me no welcome. Naked, and you gave me no clothing. Ill and in prison, and you did not care for me. Then they will say in return, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or ill or in prison and not minister to your needs? He will say, say to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, what you did not do for one of these least ones, you did not do for me. And these will go off to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. 
So in that parable that Jesus tells, did he say, enter my kingdom because you called me Jesus as the Lord? No, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. And the others were condemned by their lack of good works, what they did not do for someone else. So they pointed that out to Martin Luther. Luther, you're clearly wrong. This parable clearly shows that you are mistaken in that. So how do we handle that? Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are secondary gospel accounts. They're only important when they agree with what's in St. John. Since St. John doesn't tell us that story, we can dismiss it. And now we're just playing games. Now we're no different from the Jehovah's Witnesses who just write, read, translate things and write into the Bible whatever they would like to be there. Well, of course, that's not what we can do. This is the revelation of God. It's not up to us to decide to interpret it the way we want it to be, but the way it was meant to be. So that became a very critical one. Okay. Martin Luther and, uh, and that. So you can see where that can come to serious, serious problems. Now, I want to end with a few different um, examples of going further okay, that I think you'll find interesting, called the little desserts we have. But before I do that, any questions on any of that so far? Especially the letters of the Romans or anything? Someone has a comment here. Yes. I just wanted to read yeah. it to you. Um, they said, <clears throat> I had a Catholic friend say to me one time, Michelle, oh no, you already guaranteed a place in heaven because of your strong faith and belief in God. But I spoke on our responsibility to carry out our baptismal promises to do good works, sharing Jesus with others, and that's what gets us to heaven. I think I answered honestly and correctly. Yeah, you know, that responds to uh, Father Benedict Rochelle, some of you may know, maybe rest in peace, who was one of my teachers in the seminary, talked about the born-again Christians have the first new heresy in 1,700 years. All the other heresies that have come along have just rehashed old ones. But they came up with the first new one, that I'm already saved. And they talk about the day I was saved. I am saved in Jesus. I'm guaranteed to go to heaven because I said, I believe in Jesus. Jesus is Lord. And I heard a story about one girl once, her granddaughter, her grandmother was died, who was a faithful, devout Catholic woman, went to church every day, prayed the rosary, you know, good, solid woman. And as the woman is dying, she's at her deathbed, screaming at the grandmother, Grandma, say Jesus is Lord, say Jesus is Lord, so that you can be saved. Say Jesus is Lord before it's too late. First of all, grandmother never said that once in her life. And secondly, does she think that she'll be saved just by saying, Jesus is Lord, and not by all the good deeds and the prayers and the following Christ day by day she did in her life? But they believed in some of the born-again Christians that, yes, the day I accepted Jesus, I was saved. Well, we had a young man uh, in that group who was with them that they got him, and he was born again, and he right away ran out and broke all of his rock music records because he said rock music is intrinsically evil. And first of all, no thing is intrinsically evil. It's the use of things, the misuse of things. So, you know, good rock music that has good lyrics, or at least, you know, benign lyrics, you, know, you can enjoy everything and listen to, if that's your taste. Only those that use it to get satanic messages or violent themes or foul, foul language across, those are the type we should avoid. But he broke all of those and he went along with it. And he talked about the day I was saved. I'm so grateful. I'm saved by God. Well, eventually, this young man kind of fell off it. He jumped on the wagon. I guess he fell off it. And at one point, he said, Christianity is a crock. And he fled from the group and didn't come back. So I said to him, I said, well, what about him? 
I said, is he saved? He said, well, no, he just rejected Jesus. But you said he had said Jesus is Lord and he was guaranteed salvation. So you said he was guaranteed heaven. He was already saved. And they kind of said, well, yeah, but you got to stick with it. I said, aha, there. So he, you know, he may have put himself on the right path the day he accepted Jesus, but you have to follow the path. Somebody recently posted on my blog asking me, said, Father, are you saved? So I said, I was saved in the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus and by embracing it at my baptism. I am being saved every day by trying to follow Christ faithfully in everything he teaches me through the Holy Catholic Church. And I hope ultimately to be saved when I stand in judgment before him. So salvation is a process for us. It's not a matter of one day you say the magic word and poof, up you go. Okay? It's the way we live out our lives. So person at home who wrote that very good. Yeah, that's the, the, the one brand new heresy in 1,700 years. Oh, she said thank you. You're welcome. My pleasure. By the way, anybody else working, looking online, if you have questions, just type them in and Tina will read them out to me and we'll answer them. Okay. So with that then, I want to go out to some of the fun things, if you will, that cause things that I know some of you have heard. That people will use this eisegesis, they'll read things, they'll pull out of the text what they want to find there, or read into it and try to confront us as Catholics and try to show us that we're wrong. For example, our belief in the perpetual virginity of Mary, that the Blessed Mother, Jesus, was the only child she ever had, and she remained a virgin throughout her life. Among many different things, I don't have time to look at all of them, but one of the first things they'll point out to us is Matthew 13, 55. Let me just get to it for a second here. You know where I'm going with this. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You ever seen it? All right. This is Jesus. He came to Nazareth, his hometown. The people were astonished and said, Where did this man get such wisdom and mighty deeds? Is he not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother named Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Are not his sisters all with us? Where did this man get all this? So they look at that and say, he clearly mentions the names of Jesus' other brothers. So therefore, you're wrong. Mary had other children. Not true. Because there is a, a, a misunderstanding of the word in Hebrew and Greek, which mean the same thing for brother. Aho in Hebrew, Adelphos in Greek. The word literally means kinsman, male relative. Yes, your siblings would be considered your brother. But so would your nephews, so would your uncles, so would your cousins. So it was a lot more closely knit family bond there. In fact, in proof of that, if you look at the book of Genesis carefully, uh, Lot is referred to as the brother of Abraham. Yet we, cl we clearly know from the storyline that he is his nephew. So, but he's referred to as the brother, the kinsman of, uh, of Abraham. So first of all, the word brother doesn't mean Jesus had siblings. Secondly, and logically, compare that also with Matthew 25, verses 55 and 56. Let me get back to a little bit closer to where I was before. Probably the family Bibles as they put all these picture tables pages <laughs> in the middle before you get to it. Okay, 25, 55 and 56. Good. This is the crucifixion scene in Matthew. Um, there were many women who followed there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among them were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. 
Now compare that to what we have in Matthew 13, 55. Where did he get all this? Are not his brothers James and Joseph? And now he has here, um, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. Well, if those were Jesus' siblings, then who was that person? Obviously, the Blessed Mother. Now, even notice they have the same name, Mary. Well, obviously the fact that she's referred to as the mother of James and Joseph and not the mother of Jesus is telling. Uh, Mark tells us the same thing. I believe it's also in Luke. And think of it this way. Suppose my mother were to come in here right now and one of you who knows my mother were to bring her up here and say, hey everybody, I want you to meet Joan Carosa. She's the mother of Tony and Paul Carosa, my brothers. Would you introduce her that way? Of course not. Whose mother are you going to say? It's father's mother, because your relationship is with me, even though she is the mother of my two brothers. But you don't know them. Your, your relationship is with me, not with my brothers, so you just naturally say, this is father's mother here. So the fact that this Mary is referred to as the mother of James and Joseph, rather than the mother of Jesus, is indication that that's not the blessed mother. It's some other woman. And there's confusion among the evangelists about how many women were present at the foot of the cross. A second one to go along with that. In John, in the famous case that I know many of you know, um, let me get to that. That's John 19. Okay. Again, Jesus on the cross. Okay. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple there whom he loved, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his home. Mm -hmm. Now we need to understand something about Jewish law. A woman who was widowed depended upon her eldest son to take care of her. If something happened to the eldest son, the second son, and the third, and the fourth, would take care of her. Because if you didn't, your mother would be left a beggar in the street. There were no widow societies, nothing to take care of her. So, unless a woman had a means to take care of herself, she would become a beggar. Joseph was clearly dead by now, and Jesus is obviously taking care of Mary. Notice how she's always somewhere in the background, in the stories and the scriptures. She's not just staying back in Nazareth, and we never hear from it. She always seems to be around somewhere. Because Jesus, even in his work of redeeming the world and preaching his gospel, is still taking care of his mother. Wow. His duty, according to the Jewish law, of a faithful son taking care of his mother. Now, if we read an account of all the different people mentioned in the scriptures as the so-called siblings of Jesus, there's about six or seven other men. Everybody obviously agreed that Jesus was the firstborn, so he's taking care of Mary. With Jesus dying on the cross, he would turn to his second brother. And then something happened to him, then his third, and the fourth, and the fifth, down the line. But Jesus, even in his agony on the cross, sees Mary there with, his son, with John, and says, Woman, behold your son, meaning John, and John, behold your mother. And from that hour, he took her into his care. That Jesus, even in his agony on the cross, is still fulfilling his duty as a faithful son to his mother to make sure she's taken care of. And from that moment, the disciple took her into his care. Why would he have had to do that if there were six other brothers? 
There would be no reason to do that if Mary had other sons. But the fact that Jesus being her only born child meant that she would have been destitute. And Jesus, even in his passion, takes care of his mother. Mm. Okay. Another one that a lot of you have heard. The famous one, call no man father. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they come and say, and, I, and people say that to me, oh. Yeah, in fact, there's this one guy who works for diocese who is not Catholic, and he only calls me pastor. He refuses to call me father because Jesus says, call no man father. And my friends, I remember my born-again Christian friends, had used that with me. Why do you call your priest father? Jesus says, call no man father. So I said to this one guy, I said, what do you call your male parent? He my father. You miserable, disobedient sinner! <laughs> Jesus says, call no man father. He doesn't say, call no priest father. He says, don't call anyone on earth your father. Let's read the line. So you can get Matthew 23, verse 9. So we can see it clearly in its context. It's in the middle of a big thing that Jesus is talking about, the scribes and the Pharisees and integrity of heart. Yeah. Okay. Call no one on earth your father. You have but one father in heaven. Okay. So, no one on earth. So how can you call your male parent your father? You miserable, disobedient sinner. Tear in the headlights look from him. <laughs> And I said, then another one, I said to him, I said to the guy, I said, what do you do for a living? And I knew what he did for a living. Because I'm a teacher. You miserable, disobedient sinner. Because the line after that says, Jesus says, do not be called teachers. So you call yourself a teacher. You're disobeying Jesus. You miserable sinner, you. Again, what? I said, I said, and I said, do you think Jesus, the day he was talking about, he was talking about the a hypocrisy of the Pharisees who did everything for external show to make everybody think they were holy, but inside he called them whitewashed tombs, and he's calling them to have integrity. Don't call anyone on earth your father. In other words, don't give authority to any human being that rightfully belongs to your father in heaven, <coughs> to God. That's what he's saying. Do you think he was saying, oh, by the way, I'm letting you know from now that 1,700 years from now, the Catholic Church is going to get the practice of calling his priest father, and I'm letting you know from now that it's wrong. Give me a break. Okay? It's not at all what he was saying. Perfect example of eisegesis, of people plucking the line out to mean what they want it to mean. That means that we should not call our priest father. So, well, if you want to be very literal, you know, do you call no man your father? Can we call a woman father? It says, call no man your father. Then we're getting into the etymology of, is that mankind, your human being, or male individual? So, <clears throat> obviously, that's not at all what Jesus was talking about. And he doesn't say, call no priest father. He was simply saying there, don't give other people authority over you that is not theirs. Don't let other people, don't be a teacher to others in the sense that you think you're their master. The Lord is your master. You are teaching, or I'm teaching through you. So that doesn't mean somebody can't call himself a teacher, and you can't call your, your male parents father. Okay? Not at all what they meant, but they love to throw that at us. And of course, if you know how to respond to them, you, know, you just make mincemeat out of it. You realize, you realize what you just did? What a foolish thing you said was? Okay. Another one. <laughs> one of my favorites. 666, Satan's Tattoo. From the grand old book of Revelation. Okay? This is Revelation 13, 11 to 18. 
All right. Then I saw another beast come out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb's, but spoke like a dragon. First of all, I've never seen a lamb with horns. Have you? Two horns like a lamb's. Okay. But spoke like a dragon. It wielded all the authority of the first beast in its sight, and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound had been healed. It performed great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of everyone. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth with the signs it was allowed to perform in the sight of the first beast, telling them to make an image for the beast who had been wounded by the sword and revive. It was then permitted to breathe life into the beast's image so that the beast's image could speak and could have anyone who did not worship it put to death. It forced all the people, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a stamped image on their right hands or their foreheads so that no one could buy or sell except one who had the stamped image of the beast's name or the number that stood for its name. Wisdom is needed here. One who understands can calculate the number of the beast, for it is a number that stands for a person. His number is 666. And that's the line. So, from that people think that somebody is going to be born who is the Antichrist, and on his right hand, or someone on his forehead, he's going to have 6666. <laughs> and they look all over for him. And of course, from that, people never, have never seen anybody with 666 on their forehead, unless there was some crazy person who got a tattoo there. You know, because, you know, for whatever their crazy reason would be. But, yeah, that would be the only thing. If I saw that, I'd say, you went to a tattoo artist who did that, right? And hopefully any Christian tattoo artist would not do that. Be that as it may, thank you. Wisdom is needed here, even from us, to understand. First of all, we have to know something about numbers. In the ancient world, they used to associate numbers and letters. Kind of like we could do with, if you said A is 1, B is 2, C is 3, just like that. Well, they had, uh, they had a little more meaning placed to it. And it was a big game to do, to add up the numbers of your name, the letters of your name with their corresponding numbers, and see what your name adds up to. And in some strains, some thoughts, especially in, in um, people who were into horoscope and stuff like that, the number of the, the name or the meaning of that number would be symbolic because numbers had symbolic meanings. For example, seven, especially in the Jewish world, seven was the perfect number. They considered it a stable number. God created him this, uh, in one week and seven days, created him six days and rested on one. You see seven come up a lot. So seven was the perfect number. They also did not have demonstrative adjectives in the old day like we do, good, better, best. In, you know, in Hebrew, if you want to say something was good, you say it was good. Something was better, you say it's good, good. And if you want to say this is the best of all, you say it's good, good, good. Hence at Mass, you say holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. He's the holiest. Okay? They didn't have those type of verbs. So tripling something made it the best. So triple seven was God's number. So seven, seven, seven would be the number that showed God absolute perfection. Six is missing something. It's privation. It's lacking perfection. So triple six means the absolute worst of all. So six, six, six is the worst as opposed to seven, seven, seven. And one person whose name, if you added it up the right way, that added up to six, 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 was the Emperor Nero. 
whom we talked about in the first talk that I gave you. So, it was a reminder to them, certainly Nero was an antichrist, somebody who was opposed to Christ. He put the first Christian martyrs to death. And the book of Revelation was written down at a time when there was another, the, the next round of persecutions were beginning under the emperor Domitian. And they were threatening people, renounce your faith in Jesus or we'll put you to death. And some were doing it, figuring out, oh, this is getting too heavy now. You know, the price to be a Christian is too costly. No, yeah, I'll deny Jesus. And the book of Revelation is reminding them, don't listen to them. And all of the imagery, in fact, I can talk about the whole book of Revelation right now. All of the imagery is meant to tell them, as frightening as things may come to be, with all of the stuff you see, don't give yourself to uh, the Roman authorities, to the pagan Romans. Don't deny Christ, because Christ triumphs in the end. And just as Nero was declared a public enemy and forced to commit suicide, so this persecution by Domitian will end. And Christ will still be there. And if you are put to death, you will reign in glory with him in his, in his kingdom. Because they were absolutely right. So it was only a matter of reminding people of a, hint, a, a hint of a way to say, remember Nero. He was evil. And he didn't survive. Neither with Domitian and through all of the subsequent persecutions, they could say neither will Valerian, neither will Vespasian, and neither will Diocletian, the final persecution. Christ will triumph. And all the imagery at the end of the book of Revelation that talks about the beauty of Christ reigning in glory. That's basically what the whole book of Revelation is about. It's what we call apocalyptic literature. A style of literature that you and I don't understand. It was written over 2,000 years ago to people in a different culture, in a different language. And we cannot just pick up the book of Revelation and look at it and say, Oh, look, these four horsemen are going to come riding out on horses. <laughs> you know, okay, it's not literal. It's allegorical and all, and it's not a forecast of what's really going to happen before Jesus returns. It's only a reminder. Don't deny Christ, no matter how horrible it may seem. And also even some of the things about the plagues. Look at what is happening to, in these plagues that were sent upon the people who did not have the seal of Christ on their forehead, the people who rejected God, how they suffered. And they will suffer tremendously for not following Christ. But when you survive, you will be like the martyrs under the altar, in the white gowns and everything, and you will be lifted up to that glory on the last day. So it's a book just to strengthen people during times of difficulty, not a forecast. But unfortunately, you get all those guys out there with the late great planet Earth and the one who was making his big thing is, I have proof that the, the tribulation is going to come before and not after the rapture. You know, it's all, you know, it's all arguing over fantasy because that's not real. It's just imagery helping us to remember, don't deny Christ no matter how bad it gets. So, with that though, people have looked for it. 666 has become bad, um, like, you know, many places. You know, they would pass over the number. I remember somebody asking for their phone number to be changed because the first three digits, you know, 914666, whatever it was, they didn't have it. That was the devil's number. I had somebody in college refuse to live in their dorm room, 666, because that's the devil's room. And one of them said that Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist because each of his name had six letters. Ronald Wilson Reagan. My roommate in college at the same time, his name had six letters in each of them. My roommate may have been many things, but he was not the Antichrist. I can tell you that. Okay. And then all the business about looking for the tattoo in somebody's forehead that's going to be tattooed somewhere in the person's scalp. You know where that came from? Hollywood. Exactly. You know exactly where in Hollywood? The Omen. The Omen. 
The movie The Omen made that up, took that six six things and had it in the kids. And of course, what did they name the kid? Damien. And I remember some years back, one boy was taking Damien for his confirmation name, and another kid was horrified. How could you take Damien? That's the name of the devil. No, it's not. Saint Damien. Saints Cosmos and Damien. They're feasted September 26th. The twin brothers of, phys of physicians who worked for the poor for free. The crucifix that spoke to St. Francis in Assisi was in the church of San Damiano, St. Damien. So just because Hollywood makes a movie and calls their evil character Damien, now all of a sudden that means that Damien is a bad name? I'm glad they didn't call him Tina. Now all of a sudden we have a real person on us here. Unfortunately, people give in to Hollywood so easily, they think that something somebody made in a movie is truth. And Hollywood, a lot of times, will totally you know, change things around just to make a good scene. Even in movies they think they're trying to do to help people like the faith. For example, there was a thing on David that they did in King David some years back that was supposed to be done you know, respectfully. Well, when David, when the child that Bathsheba conceives through him, um, you know, dies, and David has his whole model of the temple and everything. They have him going in and destroying the thing, and he's angry at God. How could you do this to me? How could you kill my child after all I'm fighting to for you? And yet the scriptures tell us David did nothing but that. David acknowledged his sin. He goes, I have grieved. I have sinned grievously. He fasted for the child, but when the child died, he got up and ate and dressed, and he says, look, you know, I have suffered the just punishment for my crime. But that doesn't make a great scene. Smashing the temple scene would be. Hollywood does that lots of times, even in all of our movies. Like the end of The Sound of Music, that lovely thing about them sneaking out at night and going over the mountains to get into <laughs> Switzerland <laughs> safely. Well, in reality, when um, uh, Baron von Trapp was offered the, uh, the, the Navy uh, position in the Nazi army, he just took his family, got on a train, and went to Italy. And then from Italy, they uh, took a boat to the United States and moved to Vermont and opened up Stowe. So, um, or the uh, Von Trapp, whatever they call their thing in Stowe, Vermont, it's still there. The family still owns the lodge there. So that's the reality, but that doesn't make a good ending for a movie. So they decided to have the whole thing with the concert and sneaking out at the end and going to the convent and hiding in the grave, the graves there and everything, and then sneaking out and going over the mountains into Switzerland at night. There's only one problem. Salzburg's border with Switzerland to this day is a two-hour drive. So it would be like from here to Albany is the distance between Salzburg and the border of Switzerland. So they never would have walked over that at night. And if they had crossed the border right where Salzburg is, they would have crossed the river into Ubersalzburg, which is Germany, right at the spot where Hitler had his eagle nest. He would have, they would have walked right into Hitler's camp if they had done that. <laughs> so... But Hollywood didn't care. It made a nice ending. So don't believe what you see in movies as has to be truth because I saw it in a movie. <laughs> okay. One more thing I want to share with you, and then I'll open up for questions. That's not really a matter of misunderstanding, but some of the things we miss if we don't understand the fullness and the nuances of Jewish life and practice and traditions and customs and things such as that. St. Luke tells us in 21, 41 to 42, the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus goes into the garden, he falls to his knees in prayer and says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass me by. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Nothing shocking about that, right? 
Except when we remember this. Jews didn't kneel to pray. That came along many years later, centuries later, that we started kneeling to pray. Jews prayed like this. A Jew would go into the temple and with his hands and help, are held up to heaven and calling out to heaven. So Jesus, a faithful Jew, would have gone to the garden and said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass me by. But he fell to his knees in prayer, meaning he buckled under his own weight. He was so frightened he couldn't even stand up anymore. Little things you learn just by knowing a little bit about customs. Mm -hmm. Many, many other things we can talk about in the scriptures there. But for tonight, I just wanted to give you a little bit of a taste of how to and how not to read the Bible. And always have a good Bible study uh, with you. Not only Anthony's class, but if you need a book at home, there are many good ones out there. One I recommend is very brief, so it's giving you only a, um, an overview of it all, is the Catholic Bible Study Handbook. Okay, this book is very good. There are many others out there. So Anthony probably can give you some other titles if you want something, especially on individual books that go into further detail. There's all sorts of gospel commentaries and things that, you know, they'll have a book this big on each book in the, in the Bible. So if you want to go to that detail, you can. But this is a nice little handy thing for anyone who wants an introduction to how to understand the Bible. So that's my presentation. Now I'll open it up to your questions, anybody. I just wanted to say, no one questioned yet, but Michelle was saying that, you know, what you were saying was really awesome, and she said that, um, what do you call that, that, um, she said, like, some of the things you said was like an aha moment, like, you know, that you, some of the things you explained, like, mm -hmm. she's heard before, I guess, about the thing yeah, of the priest being father and everything. Okay, well, great. Thank you for listening, Michelle. Thank you for the question. Anybody else have anything? Even any other lines of scripture that drive you crazy or things you've heard from? Oh. Christian to things. Yes. Well, at the time, I'm living embarrassed. I never realized Jesus buckled yeah. to me. Wow. Yeah. I mean, forget about that. And Luke is the only one who mentions that Jesus sweat blood. Now, a lot of times people said, oh, that was just symbolic. You know, his, uh, his, his, you know, his drops of sweat were like drops, and they were so thick they were like blood. Well, really. When you bleed, does it look any different from water outside of the color? The consistency is not different. No, it's something that we know um, scientifically today, yeah. something known as hematidrosis. And that is when somebody is experiencing extreme torment and stress and agony and panic in their mind, that the blood vessels, the blood vessels in their pores start to burst. And as they sweat, blood mixes in with them. And Luke noted that Jesus sweat blood. Luke, Luke was a physician. Mm. He'd be the one to notice something like that. So little things such as that, that sometimes people wrote off, and then later said, you know what, maybe there was more truth to it. Which is something I want to say in general about the historicity of the Bible. Though it's true that the Bible is not a history textbook, and certainly not a science text, Nevertheless, I think there's a lot more history underlying a lot of the stories that people in modern days have given credit for. It became very popular in the last 50, 60 years to 100 years in talking about the Bible that everything is made up. These things never really happened. Even King David never really existed. There never was an exodus. These were all just made up stories. Well, the more archaeology we keep discovering, the more archaeology is proving the stories in the Bible have a foundation in history. Now, definitely, with oral tradition and the course of time, things get changed a little bit, as we all know. But that there's a foundational core to many of the events. They're starting to say, you know what? It's true. Like even geologists and people looking at all things and paleontologists saying, no, paleontologists work with 
Yeah, paleontology work with old life forms and things. Yeah, uh, that there were evidence in some places of uh, large-scale floods that took place. So there may have been something that was, in fact, the foundation for the biblical flood story. So all sorts of things like that may probably have a foundation in truth. What it is, what is the foundation, is fascinating biblical study. Like if you talk about the race of the giants and the demigods and the people that were the product of angels and men, you know, what were they referring to? Well, we don't know. People are still discussing that. But don't dismiss the history of the Bible automatically as, you know, absolutely false. Yes, there are things that we have to understand. For example, the ages of people in the book of Genesis, that Methuselah lived to be 989 or whatever he was as the oldest person in the world. Well, that was a, a, a thing they used to use back then, that the better somebody was, the longer he lived. So that guy was pretty good. He lived for 800 years. That one was even better. He lived 350. The other one, not so good. He only lived 750. They would just ascribe numbers to them. The message is this person, the more he lived, they're telling us that the person's memory was kept in more esteem. It was a better person than the other one. So things like that, yeah. In writing the scriptures, they were not as concerned about historical accuracy of timing, of chronology, as we might be, even in the gospel accounts. For example, something that a lot of people miss. You notice John's account of the Last Supper is the only one that doesn't mention the Last Supper? Excuse me, the Eucharist, the institution of the Eucharist. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that during the Last Supper, Jesus broke bread and gave his Eucharist in the middle of the Passover meal. Now John dedicated this entire sixth chapter to the discourse of the bread of life. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life within you, for my flesh is real food and my blood real drink. So John talks about it, but all four Gospel accounts admit or agree that Jesus was crucified on a Friday and was first seen risen from the dead on Sunday. All four agree with that. But if you look carefully, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the night of the Last Supper, they're already in the first night of the Passover. They're celebrating the Passover meal. And so at the meal that was the Passover from death to life, where the angel of death passed over them in Egypt, now it's the new covenant in Jesus' blood that will be shed the next day, that he gives them his body and his blood in eating the Paschal lamb now that Jesus is, is our Passover from death to life. So, they show that happening there. Historically, I think that's exactly what happened, that Jesus was celebrating the Last Supper uh, as the Passover meal. In John, if you read carefully, when they wanted the bodies taken off the cross, since it was preparation day for the Passover, and that Passover was a solemn feast day, they asked that the bodies be taken down. The preparation for the Passover meant the afternoon going into the sundown. So the Passover was not going to be held till Friday night. The Passover always fell on the 15th day of the month of Nisan in the, the Jewish calendar. So like Christmas, could fall on any day of the week. So according to John, the Passover was not going to be until Saturday. So Friday night is when they would be having the meal. He has a day off from that. Why? Because he has Jesus dying on the cross at precisely the moment when the lambs were being sacrificed in the temple for all the people to have in their Passover meal. So drawing in that connection. So I, you know, John would move something. He also moves the um, cleansing of the temple. Matthew, Mark, and Luke is somewhere right around the triumphal entry, the events of Holy Week, that he cleanses the temple. John is in the very beginning to show from the very beginning, as I mentioned earlier, that the chief priests, the religious leaders, were against Jesus from the start. 
So they back then didn't have any problem moving things around to make a point. We would. Today we'd say that's horrible biography of science or history. But especially when they're trying to make a theological point rather than give a historical biography, there was no trouble with that. Anything else? She just said, um, Michelle again said um, that she, you know, she saw Jesus there with the blood dripping down his face and everything that touches her heart deeply and would give her chills. It's awesome, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And if you like that, come back in two weeks when we talk about the Shroud of Turin, Jesus' mm -hmm. burial cloth. That's going to be my next topic in two weeks. Any other questions? Comments? Or... Mm -hmm. I'm surprised, too, that you don't have 15 million. I'm, 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 trying, to, I'm trying to think of them. I, I know they're in there. I'm just trying to pull them out. Oh. Yes. Like, say you're in a bad mood, you're not technically supposed to read the Bible, then. <laughs> what? Well, <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know if I would say that, because that might be what brings you out of the Bible. Oh, out of that mood. Yeah, that's what I mean. What <laughs> brings you out of the bad mood? In fact, there's lots of different things you can find. There's scripture verses to go to in a certain need, and there's something that will comfort you. So if you're in a bad mood, you read this line. If you're dejected, you've been rejected, read that line. You're fearful, read this. You're joyful, read that. So, but with anything, you always have to know. Yeah. And somebody who's given us a good, faithful guide to how to do that. Yeah, I've put things in the, in the bulletin once in a while about you know, emergency numbers. Only not you know, the police and everything, but you know, Revelation 6 or Romans 13 or whatever it may be. You know, in whatever you're in this situation, that will help you. Somebody who knows what they're talking about and saying, this is a good place to go when you need comfort at this moment or whatever. Fair enough. But even if you're in a bad mood, what do I do to get out of it? Yeah, well, yeah, I guess you don't want to. Maybe it would be cleansing the temple. Uh, Jesus cleansing the uh, temple might get you out of your bad mood because you're venting with him. <laughs> yes, Tim. Uh, I guess I was going to say, like, um... The events of the Old Testament, like like how Jesus and Moses writ of, written wrote of me. Sorry. Yeah. Um, it's is the Old Testament like the whole thing, like uh, foreshadowing or prefiguring Christ in the church, yes. or like there's a lot yes. of stuff, right? We cannot understand the New Testament without understanding the Old. There is a trend among some people in Christianity today, even among Catholics, to try to just reject the Old Testament. We don't need that. All we need is the New Testament. Well, no, it's like. Trying to get the who done it in a murder mystery without reading everything that led up to it. You don't even hear about the murder of the person. How can you get the, you know, who killed him if you don't even know what happened? It's like just reading the last chapter. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise, so we have to understand the promise that leads up to it. And read in light of that, that's where um, the benefit, if you notice at Mass, we always do normally a reading from the Old Testament and then a reading from the New. And usually the Old Testament reading somehow connects with the New Testament reading, that there's a bridge there, so when we're preaching, we may work on those. If you get a chance to go to the chapel in the seminary at some point, once we open up again, yeah, and outsiders are allowed in, you'll notice the beautiful windows they have. The big window is a scene in the New Testament, and underneath it, the um, smaller window is a scene in the Old Testament that pre prefigures it, what we call a type, a hint of something that we're going to see in the life of Christ. And there are many. If I did a course on the Old Testament, that's one thing, well, as I'm doing with my catechists, that I'm teaching. One of the things I will be teaching them is about typology in the Old Testament. Things in the old that are hinted at in the new that we see in Christ. Such as, just to give you one, Isaac walking up the mountain, carrying the wood on his shoulders for his own sacrifice. 
Oh, who else carried wood up the mountain on his shoulders for his own sacrifice? Jesus. Jesus, that's a type. However, the difference there is as Abraham was ready to slay Isaac, the Lord stops him. Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy. Now I know how much you love me, that you are willing to give me even your only begotten son. And it's as if God is saying to him, no, Abraham, I won't make you sacrifice your only son for me. I'll sacrifice my only son for you. Yes. With the Gospel of Mark, so you said, that makes sense. So you're saying, like, to try to, like, get them out of the pagan or, like, to, to encourage them, like, that Jesus is the true God, that he, like, how they attributed the gods, you know, controlling all the elements and being able to, you know, uh, uh, make people get sick or be healed. So they made, so he showed all the healings and everything of Jesus, like, all, uh, most of the, all the Gospels, to emphasize the point that Jesus is the one who has the power over the winds and the sea and the earth and healing and everything, because he's the true God. He has all the power. Let me give you one of the biggest in-your-face lines in the Scriptures. Talk about somebody who was not diplomatic, who was not worried about uh, political correctness, is Mark. The first line of his gospel. Now you have to remember something. Mark was living on the Capitoline Hill in Rome. The same, in an apartment in the same place where the emperor and the senators and everybody, the, the, the seat of power was the Capitoline Hill. Mark had an apartment somewhere on the Capitoline Hill in Rome. And he writes this line. Um, <clears throat> The Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay. That was an in-your-face to any Roman who would hear that. Because they would know what he was doing. He was borrowing language. <laughs> Whenever the emperor went out and had a conquest, you know, like he conquered the Parthians or something like that, he would send messengers back to Rome with words, and they would call the people, stand up in the forum, Evangelion in Greek, good news, good news. We even say gospel. Imagine the saying, gospel, gospel. Caesar has triumphed. Caesar is the king. Caesar is the ruler. And talking about all the wonderful things he did. So, Mark takes those very words that Romans would have heard over and over again every time a Roman emperor had a victory and says, no, Evangelion, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then they would hear Kaiser Kyrios. Uh, 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 Caesar is the Lord. Caesar is the Lord. Kaiser Kyrios. That was another firm term they would use over and over again. No, of Jesus Kyrios. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that was the title the emperors were using for themselves, the Son of God. So Mark is standing on the Capitoline Hill in Rome in the belly of the beast, saying to everybody, Caesar is not the king. He is not the, the anointed one. Christ is the anointed one. He's the Son of God. And of course, at this time, many of them were worshiping emperors, were asking people to worship them as if they were gods. Julius Caesar, around that time, it used to be after they died, they were deified. But Caligula was the first one to come along and make people worship him as a god while he was still living. And by 70 AD, when, when Mark was writing, that was a common thing. So, Caesar's not God, Jesus is. In your face. Amen. Wow. And that gets attention right away. However, you also do notice that one of the interesting things about Mark is that he explains a lot of the Jewish customs that Matthew wouldn't have to do because his Jewish audience would understand it. Mm -hmm. But also he seems to be more sympathetic to the Romans in one special thing because Pontius Pilate, you know, the procurator, or the governor actually, we discovered now his actual title was governor, not procurator. The governor of Judea is a high-ranking official. He would have come from Rome. 
Caesar's, uh, the emperor sent out people very close to him. So Pilate came from Rome to be the governor of Judea. So here's Mark writing in Rome, and then writing about what Pilate did. By this time, Pilate was no longer in office. Pilate may even still have been living in Rome at the time. He may have gone back to his family in Rome, or at least his family was there. So there's little hints in there, almost like to Pilate's family, to get them to believe. Said, you know, he wanted to release them. He wanted to release them. He didn't want it, but they forced him to. Anything else? Well, good. The next week, Anthony Felicissimo will be back with a discussion on numerical still happen. Still there? Mm -hmm. Okay. And since his talk last week was wonderful, I expect his talk this next week to be just as wonderful. I'm sure it will be. Okay. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May yes. Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Again, if you'd like to make an offering to support the parish, use a little drop box there. And I'll stay around if anyone has any more questions you want to ask. I'll just turn the mic off. Finish your right, Father? Yeah. You know, Good night, the title that Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please pass the word on to your friends and invite them to listen. For more materials from Father Carosa, please visit www.fathercarosa.com.